Welcome to Beyond the Pink Cloud, the podcast where we talk about moving forward in our lives through recovery and navigating the world with grace, ease, and humor. We've got tools and strategies from the experts to help you live with less stress and increased ease. Let's get into today's episode. Happy New Year, everyone. Before we jump into this amazing episode with author Laura McCowan, I want to thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. We had such a great start in 2019, and I'm really excited for what's to come in 2020. I already have some pretty amazing guests lined up, and I really can't wait to see who else uh, comes on to speak with me. So it's a new year and a new decade. Happy 2020, everyone. It feels like a great big fresh start, but that can also be a little daunting. Like there is pressure, right? Pressure to create or do or achieve something amazing because it's this new decade. Uh, And I'm sure you will. I'm sure you'll create something amazing. And if you're starting this new year a little bit unsure about your resolutions or goals, or maybe you aren't feeling exactly aligned with what you're feeling inside and what you want to create for yourself, I invite you to join the Self-Love Project. This year, instead of resolutions, I am leading an exploration into discovering our internal terrain. I am facilitating this group for the entire year of 2020 with a different focus on each month to build skills, habits, and most importantly, a connection with your internal self. When we're able to increase presence in our bodies, to really show up and to be in our bodies, we awaken to the power of authentic choice because we're here, so we're able to discern more yes or no. This feels good. This isn't what I want to do. And having and owning this power of choice greatly alters how we structure our lives and what we choose to engage in and what we choose to spend our time on. And this can shift a lot of our goals and of our resolutions and of how we set out to achieve them and what habits we're creating. So if you'd like to spend a year exploring with me and with the group, please come on in and join us in the Self-Love Project. This is a free project to join, and their link will be posted in the show notes. An already strong community is forming, and it's amazing to see members are offering support on some of life's really big, tough issues. Um, It's been wonderful to see the support that's already growing there. So I'd love to have you in the self-love project, and I really look forward to seeing you in there. Check the link out in the show notes. And so without further ado, I'm so excited to bring you this episode featuring Laura McCowan. She is a force of nature and an incredibly grounded person. After this interview, I went out and bought her book, and I think you probably will too. I hope you enjoy the episode, and thank you again so much for listening and for your support of the podcast. Hi, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby. And today I'm very excited to introduce, we have Laura McCowan with us. She is the author of We Are the Luckiest, and her book actually was just released today. Hi, Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming on to chat with me. I know you're a busy lady. (laughs) No, this is great. Thank you for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, So I'm curious... And I want to go a little bit into your backstory, but I'm curious for you, like how you're feeling with your book, like launching today, today. this morning. I'm honestly so relieved that um, the lead up to publishing a book is long and so much uncertainty and just 
it's just long. So uh, there's a lot, there's been a lot of anxiety in the past couple of weeks, but Mm -hmm. uh, today I feel pretty good. That's awesome. It's out, it's done, it's here and it's going to be what it's going to be. Out of your hands. What do you, uh, I'm curious, I just finished my first module of my second year of somatic experiencing training, which is very body-based therapy. So I'm curious just like what you notice in your body, like with that relief. Mm, Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Well, I am someone who has at times suffered from severe anxiety, Mm -hmm. um, which is a really rough thing to feel in the body, right? Yeah. Um, You know, it feels like being ungrounded, you know, kind of just untethered and all over the place and also just a a pure feeling of fear. So it feels very cold and um, racy thoughts and Mm. can't breathe. Today, um, you know, I feel far more grounded. I went outside for a walk. I can, I feel slower. Like things are just more Mm -hmm. weighted down and more anchored to the earth. Um, My heart's not racing. I did have probably too much coffee, but um, yeah, it's just slower. Sounds pleasant. Yeah, it's way better. Yeah. That's great. That was nice. You just took a little breath. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, I'm really happy for you with your book coming out. That must, yeah, that must be a huge relief. Um, and I'm curious, like, I want to hear more about you, but I know you're also, you do a lot of podcasts and there's a lot of information about you. Um, mm-hmm. So I know people can have access to, to finding more about your story and in other places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious just about your, like, when did you know you were writing a book? Like when did, cause it sounds like from what I've read on your blog that you, you were always writing, you know, like posts or notes or, you know, I don't know if you did a lot of journaling. Um, I've always done a lot of journaling. Yeah. And I'm curious, like when that shifted and you were like, wait, this is something bigger. Yeah. So I, I had had the idea, I think we're, this is going to be loud for a second and then it's going to go by. Can you hear it? I can't. Okay. Well, as long as you can't hear it, this great. It's very loud. Um, I had had the idea for a long time, long before I ever got sober or anything that I wanted to write a book someday. I didn't know what it would be about. I didn't know if I'd write a memoir or novel or what, but I've always wanted to write. Like it's been a dream of mine for a long time. Um, and then pretty quickly when, even before I was like finally sober, I knew I wanted to write about this. I wanted mm-hmm. to write about the experience of being addicted and getting sober. Um, and I didn't, so, so it's kind of like, I, I'd known that all along. It wasn't this moment where I went, Oh my God, this is bigger. You know, mm-hmm. there was a, there was a, because there's so different writing, journal writing and blog writing and book writing are entirely different. I thought naively that writing a book would be like writing a long blog, you know, many blogs, mm-hmm. not at all. So it's, it's a completely different animal. And so, um, there was a point when I officially was like, okay, now I'm going to open up a new file. This is a book file and mm-hmm. I'm going to start writing the book. Right. Um, and that was probably in 2014 at some point. Um, but I had no idea what I was doing. I had never written a book. I had no idea even how to start, uh, or how to structure a memoir or anything like that. So there was a lot of learning that went into that and a lot of 
different iterations of, you know, for a long time, I thought I wanted to tell the story of my addiction, like a typical memoir, addiction memoir story, you know, you do the long history of the drinking or the using or whatever. And then at the end, the person gets sober. And what I realized as I went, as I lived more of my story was that I really wanted to talk about sobriety, what it was like to get sober. And um, because it's so fascinating and hard and weird and um, layered (laughs) that I really want to talk about that. So my book's more about that. That's beautiful. And I'm sure it, when people read it, there will be a lot of resonance um, because it is hard and weird and layered. And I think mm-hmm. because there's so much in the, not so much, but there has been like a big upsurge of like sober curious. And I feel like sober is more hip or something than it was previously, or I don't know, maybe it's just more awareness, which I think yeah. is great. Um, but I think that can be like a misconception of like, oh, it's just this fun thing that I'm trying for like a week. <sighs> and And I think when you've really, you know, when it's like life or death situation, it becomes, you know, it's just such a a different animal of, um, you know, really, yeah, of coming into it. And, but then I think it also sort of tenfolds, it makes your life that much more like beautiful and glowing and alive when you're on the other side of it. Yes. Because you have gone through the difficulty, you know, if it was that light switch thing, it wouldn't mean that much. Yeah, that's Um, probably true. With your, so I'm curious too, I want to ask you a little bit about writing. Um, yeah. Did you, did you have like a process? Did you sit down every day and were like, I'm going to write my book right now? Or <laughs> did you, were you, I just listened to Amy Poehler's biography. I just got Audible like a month ago. So I'm obsessed with reading and listening uh, to a lot of books. Audible's and she, It is. And her preface, she's really openly talking about like writing a book was such a pain. Um, and talks about how she wrote like little snippets here and snippets there. So I'm curious, like what your process was for actually creating the, creating your book. Yep. Yeah, I definitely did. I didn't sit down every day. I, <clears throat> I don't know how people do that because, uh, I found that very difficult, but I, I would say most days of the week, like maybe four or five, I would wake up really early. So when I first started writing, I didn't, I had a career in advertising, um, for 15 years and I didn't quit that job until 2016, but I started writing long before that. And I would wake up really early in the morning because I have a, I have a young daughter. She was very young at the time. And I, that was the only time that I could guarantee I could write. It's mm-hmm. also the time when I, I like to write the most. There's not much going on in the world. I don't feel called to do other things. And so I would wake up early and write then. Um, that process or that sort of schedule rhythm was what I used for the book too. So I would wake up in the morning cause I've never, I mean, I don't just write for a living, mm-hmm. <laughs> not yet. Unfortunately, <laughs> maybe someday I will. I have, I have, a, I have other work that I do and lots of other things. So I would wake up in the morning and write, you know, take those couple hours. Um, and I would work on writing if it was a day where I couldn't write for whatever reason, I was too tired. I was had other things going on. I needed to sleep more. I wouldn't. And then I would kind of review, maybe do some editing later in the day because it's different Mm. work. It's easier. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a lot more unstructured before I had my book deal. Um, there's something very wonderful about having a deadline (laughs) that is enforced by others. Um, as my friend Sarah Heppel has said, it's, it gives a container to your despair because writing is <laughs> really, it's wonderful, but it's, it's also not this enlightened, you know, spiritual experience that 
I think people perceive it to be. It's, it's work. Um, Mm -hmm. It's sometimes very hard work. And when you're writing memoir, it's extraordinarily emotional, like extraordinarily emotional. I had talked about these things. I had thought about all these things, but I uncovered more when I was writing and it's like a body processing. My body was very tired. Um, I would have to lay under my heavy blanket a lot of days after writing just to be okay. Slept a lot. So, so the process was I, I didn't write my book in order, you know, in the, the chronological order or the order of the chapters. I wrote the, I kind of knew the structure of the, the chapters and the points that I wanted to make. I wrote them in the order that I, that felt like, right. And, um, and I wrote in the morning. Yeah. Sounds, sounds like it worked. Yeah. I mean, it's every, and a process is fascinating. And I always wanted to know about other people. I still want to know about other people's process too, because I just think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, I, you know, this is my first time writing a book. Maybe as I write more, I will have, it will be different. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. But um, you hear people say, write every day. For me, right. I was like, oh my God, I can't do that. It's too hard. It's way too hard. I think trying to do really anything every day with the exception of, you know, sleeping, drinking water and a really basic stuff, it can often be too, too much on our systems. And it's yeah. creates like a, a pressure too, that I don't feel like is especially helpful. Of yeah. Like you must do Agreed. this every day at this exact time. And then it's like, well, yeah, but how's my system feeling today? Is that like something that's actually going to feed me or be beneficial to my growth right. in this particular process? Right. I like right. how you yeah. talked about, um, oh, sorry, I just cut you off. No, you're fine. You didn't. Um, okay. <laughs> I like how you talked about it being a body-based practice and like that bringing so much up. Um, and I'm so in this like body-based mind after going through this training. Um, because I think, and I don't know if this is true for you, like when you're writing, it's like you're, you're reliving some of those experiences a little bit, but you're reliving them from this place of like you're sober. So you're more clear and maybe you have a little bit more emotional like wherewithal to manage them. But all of that all of that sort of um, like neurobiological feedback is still there and in the physiology. So I imagine it's incredibly therapeutic and, and difficult. Like you said, I love that you have a weighted blanket you yes. brought into your writing. <laughs> into my writing. Yeah. That was on a recommendation from a friend who had written a memoir that mm. she felt like almost killed her to write. So wow. it was like, get a, get a weighted blanket. I mean, not literally, but it, it was, you know, similarly Hard. difficult. Yeah. It is a body experience. I mean, I'm, I, um, I'm a yoga teacher, have been for a long time and very interested in the body and what we hold in it. And I incorporate the body into all the classes I teach and teach a lot of retreats and talk about it a lot because it's just forgotten. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we forget that we live in this animal. <laughs> Yeah. And that it remembers everything that has ever happened to us. It has absorbed every relationship and experience and place we've ever been and all of that. And so um, it's been a huge part of my healing to just reconnect with my body and use my body as for healing and, and yeah. to bring it along. Not, you know, we think we in the West, we just think it's all in our mind. Everything's solved that way. So the, I couldn't believe though, I, I recently, at the end of last year, I taught a class, um, a master class for helping people to start write a book. And they were all memoir writers with the exception of one. And she, and, and all of them, all women said, 
they could not believe I warned them, but then they, when they got into it, they could not believe how difficult it was and how Mm. tiring and how much resistance they, they met and how, um, how it is an experience felt in your body. So it is fascinating. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we need more of those. I think we need more like experience that, that actually make us be in our body. Oh, totally. Yes. I think it's a lot, a lot of the work I do is really based around that. Even in very early stages, if I'm not doing like one-on-one somatic work with people, just like those initial things of like, when do you feel good in your life? And what is that like in your body? Cause so like the quick response is so much like, oh yeah, I feel fine. And it's like, there, there's this level of detachment where it's like, I'm this floating head and oh yeah, I have a body. And um, yeah, it's been, well, and do like it- we have so many people like women, especially and, and men too, but especially women, I work mostly with women, their body is this thing that they have tried to manipulate and control. And it's like an enemy Mm. seen as an enemy a lot because it is not the shape we want it to be or the size we want it to be. And uh, so I think we don't think of it as a friend. Yeah, I think that's really true. And and I feel like then when we're trying to develop practices towards self-love and self-care and all of these things, but we're in that sort of mindset of like, my body's not the way I want. It's like, well, how there's just this massive disconnect. Um, So I think trying to like unlayer that a little bit or just get people like noticing when they feel good. I feel like that's such a huge step at all. Like just that alone, I think can, can start to shift some of the, the narrative and the, the way we go through life. Yeah. Agree. Um, and so would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself, about sure. your, yeah, kind of your trajectory and what brought you to the book? And Yeah, absolutely. So uh, my book is obviously about um, sobriety and it's sobriety from alcohol. I started drinking, uh, I, for, I grew up in a family where drinking was very normalized, like a lot of people. Um, and I grew, we owned a restaurant. And when I was a teenager and it was just drinking was like this foregone conclusion. Like everybody, I thought everybody drank and all adults mm-hmm. drank. It was just something I was eventually going to be doing. I started um, drinking when I was 16 or so, but not heavily. I was an athlete. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't the person that started drinking. It was right, right away. It was like, oh my God, this is the answer to everything. But by the end of high school, I developed a re- really bad eating disorder I had a lot of emotional stuff going on and alcohol started to feel different to me then. Um, I remember thinking at my high school graduation party, you know, I was able to, I was at the restaurant that we owned. I was able to serve myself at that point. Nobody cared. I was 17. Uh, and I had like my third drink and I remember just feeling like there were no problems. I felt, um, like all that I had been worried about and all the tightness in my body and the worry about my body because I did have this bad eating disorder and all my worry about food and all that was just gone. And I remember thinking, if I can just stay like this, everything will be okay. You know, this state of being pretty buzzed. And I really did chase that. And I rode the, I, I clung to that. Um, I went to college uh, a place where there was a lot of drinking. I always hung out with people who were drinking. I, when I went, moved to Boston in, from Colorado after college, I, I realized 
people drink just as much in the working world as they do in college, you know, if not more sometimes. And, and oh my God, now we have money and, um, and we live in this, I lived in this big city and it was all just a lot of fun. And my, my drinking progressed, um, I would say I always had a different kind of feeling about my drinking. Like I suspected that I liked it a little too much Mm. and, um, and that I needed it in a way that other people didn't seem to need it. Um, but it looked normal enough. I would have some bad nights here and there and some regular nights and through my twenties, it was mostly fine. And then I met the man who would be my husband, um, my late twenties. When we got married, my drinking started to up, uptick. There was like two points when I started drinking more, and one was at, when I got married, um, because I I just had a lot of difficulty around intimacy and relationships, and I I drank a lot of that. Um, and then another time was when I had my daughter, which was in my early thirties. And I hear that from a lot of women too that we they start mm-hmm. to drink more when they have kids our bodies change. Um, it affects us differently. We're tired. We are much more stressed and need, um, I, I remember so clearly feeling like it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. The alcohol isn't working. And I made me want to drink. Like I just drink more, you know, to try to get it to work, I guess. Uh, I, my husband and I separated in 2012. My, our daughter was three at almost four at the time. And then my drinking got horrifically bad. Um, after he left and, or he didn't leave, we separated. And in 2013, I had a pretty, a very horrific incident involving my daughter at a wedding. And that is what forced me to go to like, actually see that this was something I needed to deal with. Um, before then I had seemed to be able to sort of explain things away. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, despite the fact that I had a DUI, I had had massive issues and things, really bad things happen, but I had still been able to kind of keep it to myself. And I, I think that speaks a little bit too about how normalized drinking is in our culture. Cause it's like, totally. Oh, you have a DUI. Yes. Yeah, so does my friend or so does so. Oh yeah. No, I looked for all the people who, yeah. Do you guys happen all the time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I only hung out with people who drank like I did, you know, so it was very normalized. Um, and then when I, when that happened in July of 2013, I did end up going to my first AA meeting shortly after that. And that kind of started me on the path to sobriety. Um, but I had a, I did not finally get sober until September of 2014. So a year and some later. And that year was just uh, filled with a lot of pain and grief and anger and frustration. And, you know, I really thought like, this is the end of my life. You know, as a lot of people do when they come up against sobriety, I thought it was the end of all the fun and the color and the the mm-hmm. love and dating and f- social life and the work life. I mean, my work life was very boozy too. And I just didn't know how to do anything, uh, how anything would look without it. And then, but I finally, I, you know, I finally did. And there's a lot of, a lot in that year, you know, of course. 
um, yeah, so September 2014. And then I started really started writing um, and I created like a, an Instagram account that was sort of a secret Instagram account. It wasn't my personal one in 2013 because I really wanted to talk about this because it was so mm -hmm. confounding to me. And so I'd always been a seeker and I'd always been very interested in the sort of pain that we go through, like the human experience. And I realized like, oh, this is what I'm, this is what I've been reading about all my life, you know, this type of experience now, just not something I'm reading in a book. This is like coming in my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started writing about it. I started a blog. I started that Instagram account. And then when I was a few months sober, I started a podcast, um, called home with Holly Whitaker. And that grew to be sort of a big thing. And then, um, and then I, it, so I was still working this advertising job and I, over the course of like a year and a half, two years, all my other work, the writing, and I started teaching yoga again and I, and, um, the podcasting kind of took on this. It was like a second job almost. Um, and I knew, I knew pretty quickly when I got sober, I was like this, I want, I want to be doing work in, mm -hmm. I want to be a writer. I want to do that type of work. Of course, I had no idea how. So I eventually there was a this is a whole other story but the there was a tipping point where it was it made sense to leave my job and and I jumped and started doing the work I do now full time or started building it up um and then the book I sold the book in 2000 like last year really in Christmas of last year not 2019 of course but 2018 and um yeah and here we are today so Quit my so it's been five years and a few months since I got sober and I quit my job in 2016. So it's been a very full five years. Five years. Yeah. Did you? Uh, thank you. That's nice to hear your story from you. And yeah, you're welcome. yeah, you're so eloquent as well. You're such a nice speaker. Well, um, you're welcome. And did you have? help like when you were transitioning from like I'm going to leave my job and then, I mean I'm sure you know we all have help but I guess I'm wondering with like business development and creation towards something new mm. or did you have any kind of a safety net with like okay I'm going to leave this job in advertising now's the time like what was what was that transition like for you yeah this is always um this is this is, I don't talk about this story much not because I wouldn't it just doesn't come up as much but um Okay, so I did not have, um, what happened was I had a very good friend who we are, we are friends through our daughters and she had, and she's an entrepreneur. She owned a bunch of restaurants and um, she had been watching me. She was like one of the first people I told when I was getting sober and she kind of watched me build this thing that mm -hmm. I was, you know, the writing. And when we would get together, she'd always ask me like, okay, what's going on? Like, what do you want to do? And she just saw this, saw sort of in me what I couldn't see yet, what I wanted, but I couldn't see yet. And we were up in a, in Maine one weekend with uh, skiing with the kids and stuff. And I was like working all weekend. I wasn't paying attention to anyone. And she was just like, what the hell's going on? Like, what are you, what's going on? What are you doing? Because, 
like, why aren't you, why haven't you quit yet? Why aren't you, that you have, like, I had a pretty decent, you know, following at that point. Mm-hmm. My writing was being published in places, but I wasn't making any money off of any of that. Um, and I just couldn't figure out how it was going to happen. Like right. I didn't have any savings. I was a financial disaster, um, mm. like a really bad, like lots of debt, lots of, I, I was a mess. I was still very new in sobriety and, um, and I was a single mom. So there was like not a safety net like that. Um, so she was like, well, okay, so what are you waiting for? I'm like, I don't have the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have the money and I don't have yeah, I don't have money. Like I don't have a bridge. And she was like, why don't you go get a loan at a bank? Like, I don't think I could get a loan at a bank to be honest. Um, and I don't want another, you know, I don't need more debt. And she was like, okay. So, um, other people did this for me when I was starting out and I believe in you. What do you need? Hmm. And I was like, I knew in that moment that like my life was changing. Like yeah. I knew in that moment that that, that I could not say no to that. Mm-hmm. Um, although it was absolutely terrifying and it felt very like, who am I to what, <laughs> yeah. what, what is happening right now? Um, and I just said, yes. Um, okay. And she said, figure out the number, figure out how much time you need, figure out the number and let me know. So I went upstairs and I cried (laughs) and then I, and and I freaked out. And then I figured out what I would need to get by for like a a small period of time. I didn't, you know, it wasn't an astronomical amount of money, but it, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. It was absolutely an angel. And a, the, you know, the biggest gift ever that she gave me, um, I, I'm sure eventually I would have left anyway and I would have figured it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, but I don't know, like that made it possible to do it then. And so my story doesn't, that's my story. You know, my story includes mm-hmm. her in that, in that moment and that time. And she, it gave me security for a few months so that I could not worry. and. Um, and then I quit my job two weeks later and that was that, you know? So yeah, it was, um, that's what happened. And, and, you know, since like I paid all that back and I will pay that forward and mm. it gave me a start. That's great. Yeah. It was crazy. It was, uh, it was a wild moment for sure. What did you, so once you, um, once she had given you that gift and you were like, okay, here's what I'm doing. I'm all in. Was it a difficult transition with like how you structured your time? I mean, it sounds like there was less stress, but I would imagine there'd be a little bit of like, oh shit, like now I have to do this for real. Um, like yeah. what, do, what do I do? Like, what did you, did you, um, create like a schedule for yourself or? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say like, it was a full loan. <laughs> she, it was like had interest in everything. Like mm-hmm. it was a gift, but I always want to say that to people. Cause I think I just still feel so like, it was such a privilege, you know, like not, a, that does, that's not something that, that happens to a lot of people. And so I just, I think I have some imposter sort yeah. of thing about it. Um, but whatever. I'm also, I, it also took a lot to say yes to it. You know, it really did. And, um, 
And yes, my schedule and my life, everything changed. Um, I didn't create a schedule for myself because I'm not that kind of person. (laughs) 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 I think I'm more organized, you know, just, I look, I had been living with this just adrenaline based Mm. life for so long. And, and on the opposite side, I had this sobriety that I knew that as long as I stayed sober, I was going to be okay. Yeah. I knew it. And I remember so many months in that, so many days in those first months and even a year, maybe even two years thinking like, if I'm not in that adrenaline state all the time, I'm going to fuck this up. But I chose to not do that because mm, good. I, I couldn't, I knew that wasn't the way I was. I, I knew I couldn't operate from that place, not to do the work that I wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, it, I, I would wait for it to come. Like I would wait for that Sunday dread to come. Mm-hmm. I would wait for that same adrenalized feeling to hit me. Like, like the fear or just that constant stress that I lived with all the time mm-hmm. about work. Like if you're not constantly on, then something's wrong. And, and I just, I, when it would creep up, it was like, no, I don't have to live from that place. I'm not going to live from that place. And it took, that took a lot of practice, you know, to just not do that. Um, but I also hustled my butt off. I mean, I just started right away throwing things at the wall and teaching workshops and, Good for you. Building, building an online thing. And I mean, I sold like an ebook, you know, like a, I still actually have it for sale. Um, like a six, you know, six mantras for early sobriety. That was the first thing I actually made money on. Mm-hmm. Um, because my friend, I had, a, I have a good friend Meadow who, um, she had been doing, she'd been working for herself and for a long time. And she was like, you are insane. You have people who literally want to buy something from you. Like mm-hmm. they are waiting what are you doing? And I was like, really? Okay. So I made this thing and, you know, made, made a few thousand dollars on that. And I was like, holy Whoa. shit, you know, I can, I, <laughs> so I exciting. can do this. Yeah. And then I started to develop online courses and I started teaching retreats and it's, you know, it slowly has built. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a different life than, mm-hmm in every way, you know, but I, I, um, I feel so fortunate first of all, but I also feel like people don't realize that you don't have to live that way. Yeah. With that time. constant adrenaline state. I love that you brought that up. Cause like back with the body based stuff, I mean, that's, I feel like we're so, <clears throat> excuse me, we're so programmed that like, even as you know, with the whole entrepreneurship thing of like, gotta hustle, gotta kill it, gotta crush it. And it's like, that's so counterproductive mm-hmm. to the the work that I do, the work that you do, the work mm-hmm. that I think a lot of women do and probably yeah. men too. And that's interesting that that's like what you touched on when I asked like, what was the biggest change of your schedule? It's in, that's not like an external thing. That's really an internal yeah. felt sense, but such a huge change. The biggest change. And I still don't feel that way. I mean, sure. There are times when I get, you know, like I said, leading up to this book launch, I felt a lot of anxiety. That's the close, that's the closest I have felt to the old state and way of living mm-hmm. you know, for a, a long time. Um, but that makes sense, you know? Uh, yes. But yeah, I don't, I don't, 
I kind of refuse to live that way. I refuse as much as Good. it's in my control to live that way because it, first of all, it's totally counterproductive, right? And it puts you out of this flow state mm-hmm. with life where everything is so much harder than it needs to be. Like I keep my life very simple, very simple. And, um, and I lived that way for so long, for so long that it almost feels like an allergic, like I have an allergic reaction to it coming on, mm-hmm. you know, cause it That's feels so lovely. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel terrible. It, it feels, feels fucking terrible. It it is. Terrible. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, and I know you mentioned a couple of your female friends, Meadow and Holly, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit to how you foster like really supportive female friendships and stay out of the comparison games. I, I know Holly has a book as well, um, mm-hmm. and I know you've done podcasts, I think, with both of them. And just speak mm-hmm. a little bit to to fostering that nice community and connection with other women versus going down that comparison rabbit hole. Well, I will first say and that has not been perfect. You know, certainly Holly and I have, you know, we had, she had, her book came out last week and came out this week. So and, close too. Yeah. And we didn't know, we didn't plan that. We, that we couldn't have planned that. Uh, we sold our books at two totally different times. It's just, <laughs> it's a funny, like, um, smile from the universe, I suppose. But, um, I, I, overall I have, attracted and been drawn to people at in the past few years who um are on some kind of path themselves and um who seem to be able to hold a vision for me that like a good vision for me that I can't see Mm. for myself you know they want really what's good for me and I want what's good for them um is that always the case and are we always without comparison? Of course not. Because, you know, in the case of Holly and with Meadow, we work in the same business. So some of that does happen. But when that has eclipsed our good feelings for each other or our good nature, good intentions for each other, we've bowed out, you know. Um, And that's not why it's not why Meadow and I finished. It's not why the podcast ended, but it was in there. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. Do we want to keep the friendship or do we want to keep the, this thing going that we're doing? And it's like, no, we want to keep the friendship. And there are other factors and all that. Um, I think comparison is a absolutely, totally natural thing. I, um, I think to answer your question, I, the lesson that I've learned, the biggest lesson I've learned in sobriety is that I'm responsible for my experience. I'm the only one who's responsible. And that means I am responsible for how I perceive things and the people I bring into my life and the people I keep in my life and how I choose what I invite into my experience. A lot of that is people. So I don't, I try not to invite in people that bring out really painful, difficult sides of me. And if, and if they do, I take responsibility for working on that, right? As best as I can. Um, yeah, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, it's not always a perfect love fest, you know, but it's, but it's great. I am completely blessed with wonderful friendships, men and women. Mm -hmm. That helps a lot in life in general. 
Yeah, I think it's essential. Yeah, community and yeah. friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, gosh, I have so many things I want to ask you, but I know we're kind of winding down. I guess I'm, I'm, I know you mentioned a few times you have different online courses, and I did want to ask you a little bit about this whole idea of uncovering your true potential, because I feel like I've, that's something I've read from you. And I like the way you talk about it, um, because yeah. I think there, again, can be a lot of pressure on like, what's your true calling and, oh, you know, yeah. leave your job and build a business around your passion. And I think a lot no, of that information no, no. just isn't, again, I feel like that's much more on this cognitive level and it's not really like touching people in a place where they can start to uncover that. Um, and I know you have a course that speaks to that, but I'm curious too, just for the listeners, if you could offer one or two little things that you feel like help to foster that ability to uncover one's true potential. Yes. So, oh, I got to bring up this quote. Okay. So, so one of my friends texted me this, this morning and he said, Oh, I have a lot of texts today. One, one second. He said, see yourself being yourself, you can finally change. So when you can see yourself being yourself, you can finally change. What that means to me is we have to be able to see ourselves clearly and, and like get to know who we actually are. I think we hear a lot about self-love and I think that's like too far, too much to ask Mm -hmm. a lot of times. It's like, who are you? You can't love someone that you don't know. So what do you like? You know, mm-hmm. how do you actually, how do you really feel yeah. about this person, this relationship, this life that you're living? How do you really feel about it? Um, what don't you like? How do you want to spend your time? You know, what do you actually value? I think that's a starting place for any of this is ask, get, start to get honest with yourself. And a lot of times what people find when they ask those questions, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know for sure yet because they don't, it, they either feel like it's very self-indulgent to ask themselves those questions because they've, that's the conditioning that they've had or they don't want to look because they're mm-hmm. afraid of what they might find if they ask those questions. Right. But I don't think you can, you can't get anywhere, let alone live into some kind of deeper purpose Mm -hmm. without starting to just have some real compassionate, honest curiosity with yourself. And I always tell people, write it down. Yeah. Like that's something everyone can do anytime, basically for free. Right. Write it down, Write, Take a single page and write down what's on your mind without editing yourself. Just go. It can be extraordinarily hard. For people to do that. They're afraid who's someone's going to see it. What if they, what if writing this down makes it true and real? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's hard. It's a hard thing to do if you're not used to that. Um, and I tell people like, if you're afraid, rip it up or burn it. Right. But, mm-hmm. but write down like one true thing, try it. And once you start that process of self-inquiry, if you can stay in that, that's where it all begins, right? Because you can't, once you start to know the truth, it's very hard to ignore it, right? And what I have learned is that the truth 
uh, about how you feel, about who you are, about what you want. Um, once you start to, I mean, our thoughts have energy, our words have energy, writing things down has energy. So you start to have a different relationship with life once you start to express these things, mm-hmm. even on paper, right? Um, and it and it starts you on a path. It starts you on a path. If I I look at back at my journals and I can see even dating back to high school that I was talking about how I was worried about my drinking. Hmm. Like I knew, I knew. And yet I couldn't really know that until my face was like pressed up against the wall, you know? Well, especially when you're continuing to engage in the drinking, it offers you a really nice, like, availability for escape. Like you could know, totally. and know, because that's so familiar. And I'm sure for not just me, but for many of the people listening, you could know, you know, I think most of us know that this isn't, this isn't right or normal or good or, or helping me become like who, who I'm, who I am who in the I world. Could be. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but then when you continue to introduce the alcohol, it's a really nice way to oh, yeah, it works. switch that off and just yeah, keep on works. rolling. Yeah, it works. So, so Yes. Start by, I like the the purpose thing and the passion thing and all that are very high pressure and that it doesn't really work that way. You know, I do believe that we all have this very unique blueprint in in yogic speak. It's called Dharma, like who you are. And I think that what you are here to do is live into that, but that just means being the truest version of yourself. Um, and sometimes that shows up in your work, but it doesn't have to, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it, it is a manifestation of how you are in the world and how you interact with other people and whether your thoughts and your actions and your, your feelings are in alignment. You know, I think more than anything, it's that. It's like we think one thing all day, but we're doing another thing and, and our hearts are somewhere else. And we feel that, that out of that being that out of integrity feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and I think the way to begin is to start to start to tell the truth, uh, you know, one piece at a time. I think that's wise. And to recognize that it might take a little while and that you're on an exploration with things and it's not, a, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to know, and then I'm going right. to go from there, but to really, you actually can't know how things are going to work. You can't. And, and really with, I, <laughs> with anything, I feel like. No, but, but people want to know, like, what is the 10 step plan to quitting my job and doing yeah. this? Like there literally isn't one. Yeah. And anyone who sells you on that, it's selling you a lie <laughs> because it's it true. doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. Um, we always want the, the plan and the fast track thing, but we, it, we ignore that we have these very extraordinary, deep interior lives. And that's where the answers come from. And you can't project manage that. No, no, I think you just start to, I think to be able to start to actually feel and understand what's happening in your body too, at the same time is a big part of that truth telling of like, oh, this is really what's real and here and now for me. And, you know, is this consistent with how I'm acting and what I'm creating? Yeah. You know, even if it's what I'm making for dinner, really. Yes. Yeah. Like small things, I think really add up, like you were saying, 
Yep. Um, so I just want to ask you what you have coming next. I know you've got a course that's coming soon, right? In February. Yeah, I have a course that started um, yesterday, The Bigger Yes. And then I, I will be running We Are the Luckiest, which is the course about how to have more stability and joy and resilience in sobriety. So I created that course around the major things that come up in sobriety for people, relationships, boundaries, um, shame, mm. anger, regret. Uh, that's, that'll start in late February. Cool. Awesome, Laura. Anything else you want to say to the audience or? No, um, no, this is so great. It's so nice to talk to you. You're very calming. Oh, <laughs> it's because I've, it's because I've been regulating my nervous system like in a class for four days. So this good, is good, good, good. <laughs> um, great. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.